0: Welcome to episode 30 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. What a difference a month makes. Last time we were joined in the studio by Lola Olufemi, Jade Bentil and Gail Lewis. They were discussing Lola's new book, Feminism Interrupted, Disrupting Power. That conversation is well worth a listen if you haven't already, so do check it out. Here we are four weeks later in a very different world, but we're adapting and I'm curious, if also a little bit nervous, to see how our first ever 100% remote podcast recording is going to go. Today's conversation has been in the pipeline for a little while. Pluto releases two new books in the Outspoken by Pluto series every six months. Feminism Interrupted came out on the 20th of March and the companion release to that is Split, Classified's Uncovered by Ben Tippett. And it's a wonderful book there's a really strong clear argument that runs through it and it's entertaining as well which isn't always a given in the world of academic non-fiction publishing so i've been looking forward to discussing the book on radicals in conversation needless to say covid 19 is going to change our conversation a bit from what it might have been It's thrown the idea of class and class society into sharp relief, ridiculing many of our economic systems foundational premises. For one, the idea that as a worker, your paycheck is a reflection of your value to society. So anyway, there's lots to discuss, and I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Ben Tippett, author of Split Class Divides Uncovered, and we're also lucky enough to be joined by Grace Blakely, author of Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization, which was published by Repeater Books in 2019, and Emily Skura, a researcher at the New Economics Foundation. But before we get stuck in, I have a few quick announcements. Firstly, as always, you can get the coupon code PODCAST at the checkout and receive an exclusive discount on Split and other related books to today's conversation. Just go to plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading to browse the full list. Secondly, if you didn't already know, subscribers to Radicals and Conversation are now going to be getting twice as many episodes coming through on the feed. Pluto has partnered with the People's Forum in New York, and we're now excited to be bringing you their monthly interview show, The New Intellectuals, as well. The first episode is already out. Host Jordan T. Camp interviews scholar activist Kianga Yamata Taylor. So if you've not listened to that one yet, do check it out. And finally, on a more urgent note, the coronavirus pandemic and the global lockdown that it's necessitated is a real existential threat to a small, independent publishing house like Pluto. With our warehouses and bookshops closing, we have to adapt the way that we work and the things that we do if we're going to make it through the coming months. So we're going to be shaking things up a bit, making more digital interventions, including a virtual events programme and online seminars with our authors and much more besides. Most importantly, we want to keep publishing books. But to do all of this, we're going to need your help. To that end, we're excited to launch our new Patreon page. We've got four membership tiers, starting from just £3 a month, and there's lots of great membership rewards, including free eBooks, deep discounts, access to extended editions of the podcast and other exclusive content, merch bundles, and much more besides. So if you want to support us, or indeed if you want to hear the full unabridged version of this podcast, do head over to patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press and sign up as a patron. All right, I think that's the plug over. So back to today's conversation. Ben, Emily, Grace, uh, thanks to you all very much for joining us today. Have you all been holding up okay uh, over the last few weeks of lockdown? Yeah, good,
1: thank you. It's actually kind of been remarkably similar to how I usually work, which is spending a lot of time at home on my computer reading and writing and engaging with other people via social media so I've been coping okay I do miss the pub though
2: yeah it's yeah. kind of it's kind of similar as a, a research student I feel like actually being a research student is kind of already going into self-isolation a little bit anyway <laughs> so it's like the, the the only difference is you know you basically have your flatmates and your your friends at home with you to uh to do the research with you so in that respect it's actually been going okay
3: Yeah, my job isn't that different either, Um, although all of the restorative things that make my job more bearable on a weekly basis have been taken away from me, so that's a thing that I'm mourning.
0: All right. Uh, So, Ben, I thought maybe we would kick off today's discussion by just talking a little bit about some of the main themes in the book. Yeah. So, one of the central premises uh, is that we're often told we live in a classless society, Uh, And that class, whenever we do think about it at all, um, is often considered along purely cultural lines. Mm. Now, you avoid the false dichotomy of class being either 100% about culture or solely about economics. But you do foreground this uh, economic nature of class. So I wanted to ask, why is it important that we understand class in this way?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's... Talking about class really um, in Britain, I think is quite an interesting thing because on the one hand in the UK, you know, we're famous for our kind of rigid class hierarchies. There's the kind of everything from the kind of upper class gentlemen with their like stiff upper lips or the the kind of the middle class with their quinoa and coffee or their rugby in the in middle England or something, or, you know, or, or the kind of lower class with the Kind of industrial workers and their kind of dirty overalls and all of this kind of stuff. You know the, the kind of images of class are really powerful within our national story. But you know, I kind of came to writing this book after running a series of workshops in secondary schools in London. The workshops are about kind of economics and inequality, and I was asking uh, students, you know, what wh- what do you think about class? And the answers I got back were just uh, a huge diversity of different kind of definitions on the one hand you know you have this idea that kind of classes this like rigid social hierarchy you know you have a kind of lower upper and middle class um, and in a way the kind of hierarchy determines kind of your like esteem and status in society and actually a lot of the students didn't really want to position themselves in this class hierarchy because they saw it as something that was kind of you know negative or you know something that they didn't want to be associated with. And as you said in the introduction, a kind of another huge way in which we understand class is purely along just cultural lines. So this is, you know, class defined by people's accents or by their tastes, you know, what kind of films they watch, how they decorate the inside of their homes. Um, Then there's also the kind of idea that class is purely just about your background. You know, this could be the kind of Alan Sugar definition of class, where you have kind of a billionaire, a member of the House of Lords, someone who has the catchphrase, you're fired and is still called a kind of like authentic working-class voice. You know, and I think also you had this idea that kind of class was really outdated as well. It was something that kind of just belonged to the past or, you know, relevant in the Victorian times, but not relevant today. What was really missing though, I think, um, while speaking to these students was uh, what I kind of consider to be the most important analysis of class, which is this economic definition of class that relates to your ownership in society. Um, you know the split between capital and labor, between um, you know those who own the stuff in society versus those who kind of work to make the stuff, or maybe a kind of different way of thinking about it is the definition given by a Warren Buffett, who's the third richest man in the world, who says there's a distinction in society between the people that make money while they sleep and those that work till they die. Maybe just to go into it a little bit about why you know what this definition of class is and why I think it's important. Um, what is capital? Capital is really, on the one hand, it, there's lots of different definitions of it, but the simplest way to think about it is the fact that there's just a lot of assets in society, like financial assets, business assets, uh, to some extent, housing assets as well, uh, that people can can make money off by employing them in an economic way in society. While labor, on the other hand, is those who don't have access to these assets or, or people that effectively need to work day in, day out in order to put ends meet on the table. Uh, and I think this divide is still, it, it runs through every single aspect of our economy and our society across, not just in the UK, but also across, across the globe. And I think what I wanted to do with the book is really just draw out the ways in which it does this. But also in a way that like hopefully is kind of engaging towards people, because what I found in these workshops is as soon as you kind of start talking about capital and labor to kind of young 17 year olds, their eyes slightly gloss over. They're not particularly kind of like interested. They see it as kind of ideological or outdated, as I said earlier.
0: So that's kind of the main aim I
2: have with the book, really.
0: Yeah, and I think you achieve it really well. Um, You don't mention Marx's capital or anything in there that's going to be particularly off-putting to younger readers. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's a number of things you discuss in the book that have uh, this impact on our class, right? And on informing our class position. So, for example, there's chapters on disability, on race, gender, culture, education, work, housing, uh, and the environment as well. I was wondering if there's anything that stands out to you as being particularly noteworthy uh, in the present context.
2: Um, I think probably the best place to start would be work. You know, I think this is where... The immediate impact of the measures that governments have imposed to deal with the corona crisis, the health crisis, is clearly um, has first impacted the labor market and work. So, yeah, maybe we could start with that. I don't know if Emily or Grace want to kind of jump in.
1: I kind of received uh, Ben's book with just um, a sense of massive relief, really, uh, because I feel like I've been talking about this stuff for such a long time and it's almost been like whacking your head against a brick wall talking about class in kind of uh, Marxist or even just structural terms um, in the UK. Because as Ben says, you know, there's both this widespread sense of, you know, the cult class is a cultural thing and you have the white working class versus the liberal metropolitan elite, which has become the big dichotomy in recent years. Uh, but there's also, I think, you know, in terms of the way that class is measured statistically, in terms of the way it's reported in our national statistics and when we have elections, that often reinforces some of those uh, what I would call misconceptions or at least, you know, limited ways of looking at class because most of the, the class schematics that we have are based on just two things, income and occupation. And that goes back to well, the Ericsson Goldthorpe model of the this 1960s when you had uh, people thinking, right, we need to get away from this Marxist vision of class that centers as asset ownership because there are these people that are earning lots of money but aren't capitalists. So what we've lost really is, you know, obviously it was important to kind of account for that the changing nature of uh, work and the ownership structures that mediate corporate ownership. But um, we've lost that sense of the importance of asset ownership. And I think that quote that Ben just mentioned, the, the Buffett quote, there are people who make money while they sleep and those who work until they die, that perfectly encapsulates the just incredibly stark differences between those who have so much money an almost unthinkable amount of money, you know, billionaires who um, we really struggle to conceive of the idea of how much, how much a billion pounds is and how, what a diversity of assets that money is invested in and how much political and economic and social power that ownership generates, that is really lost in kind of uh, pushing the, um, the question of ownership out of the way. And I think the part of the reason that it's become so much more, it's kind of come onto the table much more since the financial crisis, is because the crisis really kind of did serve in many ways to repoliticise that question of ownership now if you ask most people about that they will tend to come back to you with a question of home ownership which is obviously that delineating um the kind of older generation that were able to benefit from the, the thatcherite bubble and our generation who haven't but it's also important in so many other ways whether we're talking about you know equities whether we're talking about so you know the ownership of corporations whether we're talking about the ownership of our common public assets housing, but, you know, all sorts of other uh, important financial and economic assets that confer not just economic, but also political power. So yeah, I was just really, really happy to pick up Ben's book and be like, wow, this is such a great, just popular breakdown of why we need to start bringing back in a conception of class that has this understanding of, of ownership, but not to the detriment of things like income and gender and race and all these other important things. Yeah,
3: I agree. I, I I really valued the fact that the power dynamic element of class was really centered. So it's about your relationship to capitalism. As I'm also a union workplace rep, and that's something that I find quite difficult to um, spell out to people who aren't who don't perceive themselves as being exploited in the class system. And I think that. Certainly, in light of the crisis recently, I've had, I've been kind of um, supporting people with lots of different cases. And I think, particularly in uh, what's seen as more middle class occupations, there's a total lack of recognition of any kind of exploitation that could be possible because people don't see themselves as working class. But, you know, obviously they're not the owners of the means of production. So, you know, they are working class. They need to work for a living to survive. Um, and I think that the lack of understanding of your position in relation to, c- to capitalism means that often like union activity doesn't take place from a position of solidarity, but from a position of service um, for those who have mm-hmm. uh, slightly better working conditions, which is a really unhelpful thing to foster bonds and uh, work, like, develop worker power if you're seeing yourself as servicing those who are uh, less well off than you rather than seeing yourselves as in a collective of people who are exploited by capitalism and your relationship to capitalism, um, it's not a very productive way of fostering class solidarity and therefore action because it kind of uh, perpetuates the divides that completely serve capitalist interests.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I I guess like, What I think the coronavirus is really just exposed is both the points that Emily and Grace are making there, which is just the deep inequalities that exist within the labor market and the deep inequality between capital and labor. And I think maybe let's start with the inequalities within labor, just because I think kind of this is where the first analysis of the coronavirus kind of came from. I just think we saw more than ever the fact that the labor market was just fundamentally broken. And I think it really just just drew out exactly where the problems were. And so kind of in the second chapter of the book, I kind of talk about work as like, you know, why is it? What is it as an institution? Why does it exist? And, you know, we, we kind of all know it; it's almost kind of obvious. You know, we even know it in the fact that when you kind of meet someone for the first time, you kind of say, oh, what do you do for a living as a reference to kind of what do they do for a job? And that kind of for a living, meaning in a way, you know, work is the kind of thing that we need to do to survive for most people. You know, it's what we do to buy all of the things that we need in order to survive, because you need money to have those things. And the only way for people to get money if they don't have access to things that they own is basically to sell their time on on a labor market. And so if we kind of think about work in that sense as a kind of like exchange of time for a wage in which you can then buy things with for that wage, we can kind of see that firstly, that this our relationship is kind of an unequal exchange in lots of different ways. But also that this is some this kind of relationship of exchanging time for money is something that's changed so drastically over time. So I kind of Maybe a good place to start is actually to think about that Warren Buffett quote. You know, he says, you know, the people that work till they die, you know, maybe you're not kind of fully bought up to a Marxist, uh, you don't fully buy in, sorry, to a kind of Marxist analysis of the economy right now. And you're thinking, well, actually, what the hell are you talking about? Most people don't work till they die. You know, most people have weekends, most people have pensions, all of this kind of thing. But I think the kind of the importance of thinking about class along a capital and labor divide allows you to see the fact that, in a way, the kind of tendency of capitalism is to push people to a position where they work till they die. But the reason when people aren't working till they die is because of the fact that they've had to fight for better rights. You know, they've had to effectively fight to have time off, uh, whether it's the fight for pensions or, or the fight for the weekend, which is something that I write about in the book. Because I don't know if people know, in Britain today, the weekend isn't something that's already existed. We used to only have one day off on a Sunday. And actually, the first day off, the second day off, sorry, wasn't actually a Saturday. It was a Monday. Basically, what happened is people on Sunday, you know, they'd go to church, they'd chill out. In the evening, they'd get drunk. A lot of people on Monday morning would kind of see their, well, they didn't have alarm clocks back then, but I guess the kind of natural alarm clock of the sun rising up and would be like, ah, actually, you know, sorry, I'm not going to go to work today. And this kind of tradition of sent Monday, this kind of collective refusal to work, scared the crap out of Britain's capitalists. They didn't really know what to do about it. It was a huge kind of pressure on profits. And it was only kind of through... You know, they basically tried to organize then how, how to deal with the situation. And what they did is they gave workers uh, Saturday afternoon off as a kind of an appease to be like, oh, can you stop sleeping on a Monday? We'll, we'll kind of institutionalize this and give you Saturday afternoon off, which is apparently also why football matches kick off at 3 p.m. on a Saturday, because that was the time that kind of workers clocked off and then started to go and play football. And then over the course of the next kind of 50 years, this was, I think in about 1850. And then over the course of the next kind of 50 to a hundred years workers pushed to get the whole of Saturday off and you know this is one example I guess of many different examples where workers have changed the conditions of work and I think kind of at the moment what we're seeing now with coronavirus um, and I think something that I'd really like to discuss with with both you and Emily and Grace is like you know which way is the balance of power shifting right now is it is it shifting in favor of workers or is it shifting away from us because on the one hand I really think, you know, there's a lot of reasons to see why the power would be shifting away from workers right now. We're, we're kind of looking into the abyss of some of the worst unemployment statistics that we've ever seen in the history of capitalism. I'm sure people have probably seen it, but the I guess the most shocking stat was the one coming out of the U.S., which was the number of people claiming unemployment benefits in the U.S. was just, I think it was something like 6 million over the course of two weeks. And it just was completely incomparable to anything that has even been uh, in the past in the 2008 recession or the Great Depression. And we're seeing uh, relatively similar shocking statistics across all countries of the world. On the one hand, you know, you might think, okay, a load of people being unemployed, this puts a huge downward pressure on the balance of power of workers. Marx would call this the kind of reserve army of labor argument, I guess, you know, the idea that if if there's a load of people who want your job, it becomes a lot harder for you to kind of condition and fight for better rights. So on on the one hand, I think you're seeing kind of a redistribution of power towards capital in this crisis. On the other hand, you know, we're seeing a kind of an opening up of a possibility for to challenge the power of capital. And I think, you know, over the weekend in the Financial Times, there was this editorial that kind of put forward basically ideas that have been complete economic heresy in the Um, mainstream orthodox kind of neoclassical tradition stuff like universal basic income things like wealth taxes things like income taxes in this this sense i i guess i'd like to ask grace and emily what they thought about that whether they think how they think the kind of balance of power is shifting now and what the labor movement can do to to push the balance in power more in favor of of labor
1: emily do you want to come in on the labor movement and i'll i'll answer
2: afterwards
1: yeah sure i mean. It's
3: really difficult at this time to strike a good balance between being hopeful and, you know, giving people the energy and the wherewithal to still fight in, uh, you know, workplace struggles and to increase the the power of labour in relation to capital. But at the same time, we have had decades of decimation of the union movement through legislation um, and through cultural narratives as well. We now have particularly right-wing Tory government at the helm. And we've also seen something that I've really noticed is the perpetuation of quite defeatist narratives about the inherent nature of people being selfish through stockpiling or through going to parks. You know, it's not a surprise that this is the case, but without um, an analysis of the kind of power dynamics that lead to those those things happening um, in the media... It is the case that we've now seen a mass injection of um, public spending in a way that we've not seen the state take responsibility for in the last few decades of neoliberalism. But that isn't to mean that that balance will be shifted in favour of workers or in favour of those who are less well off and more at the mercy of the capitalist system. That's something that will only happen shifting the power uh, to the hands of workers through uh, concerted effort mobilization. It's quite difficult to see that happening uh, without huge effort at the moment because there are so few people who, uh, I mean, this is just anecdotally the case, but you can also see it in terms of like union density figures. Hmm. There are so few people who turn to a union as their kind of immediate response to facing economic catastrophe on a personal level so a lot of people kind of will go to bosses to kind of ask for things either because they believe that um, bosses have their best interests at heart or they just are quite fatalistic about uh, change which is quite understandable when you think about how much the social security net and wages and conditions have been suppressed in the last few decades. So I'd I'd say that I, I guess I'm feeling um, a little bit negative at the moment, particularly in light of the fact that beyond just the workplace itself in terms of ownership of assets, um, if you think about one of the sharpest edges of that in the private renter sector, renters might have rents uh suspended but then they might have to suddenly pay for it all at once Um, because of the kind of lack of awareness that that people have of like ways that they can necessarily challenge that because there haven't been very many because of legislation in favor of landlords Um, i think that what people might feel that their energy is more directed towards is firefighting and the sort of people who do own assets and wealth will continue to to have their lives fairly uh, kind of similarly as they were pre-crisis. Um, I guess that's not necessarily something that we have to accept, though, because there are amazing social movements that are like coming through with like a very structural analysis of this like the union movement obviously but also kind of new unions that are coming up and are trying to specifically target ununionized workers and London Renters Union and ACORN and other kind of big renters power movements um but you know as anyone in those movements would tell you that doesn't come without a massive struggle raising expectations and a huge amount of effort
1: Yeah, I mean, what I would say in terms of like where we are now and and how how the coronavirus is going to kind of affect the balance of power between different classes, I think some of the narratives that have emerged in the wake of the big stimulus packages that we've seen from various states all around the world um, has highlighted some of the limitations of the arguments that many on the left have been putting forward for a really long time. I mean, obviously, part of the reason that We've had over the last four years years-ish a bit of a socialist revival that has extended from social movement through the labor movement through electoral politics has been because there's been widespread resistance against austerity, basically against the kind of shrinking of the state in the wake of the financial crisis. And the narratives that have been built in response to that have been we need more public spending, we need more investment, we need a state that's willing to kind of step up and do things for people. And now that that's happening, I think a lot of people are looking around and saying, wait, what? Boris Johnson, who's a baddie, is doing these things and these things are good. So what are we supposed to be saying? I think that kind of speaks to the importance of having an understanding of how class power interacts with institutions, particularly state institutions, and making sure that the demands being made by the left are not simply for, you know, good people at the top to do nice things but are actually based on promoting democracy and accountability in all of those institutions in order to push back against not just bad Austerians who want to cut public spending, but actually the ruling classes as a whole. And I think the Mm. potential problem that we're going to be seeing um, as the coronavirus worsens is along with all those things that Emily just said, is that um, we're going to see a real change in the corporate environment. So there are going to be a lot of small businesses that are going to go under, And a lot of very big monopolies that are going to do extremely well. You know, we could see the kind of Amazonification of large swathes of the economy. And partly um, some of those big businesses will do well by basically kind of buying up their smaller competitors. So we'll see very strong tendencies towards monopoly. At the same time, you're going to see some corporate bailouts. So some corporations that do struggle, and those predominantly that are bigger and have stronger links with politicians potentially are going to get bought up by the state itself. So then you get to the situation where, right, you have a, a small number of very big corporations with very close links to states that are run in the interests largely of capital. And you end up basically with state monopoly capitalism. Even if you have higher levels of public spending, you've got a tiny number of people at the very apex of the economy and of politics who are making all these decisions and are not doing so with consideration of the interests of working people in mind. They're doing so, number one, in order to enrich themselves and number two, in order to stabilize capitalism. So I think you know the demands that we need to be making are not just more state action. That is very important just to mitigate the kind of short-term impact that's going to have on people's lives. But longer term, we need to be thinking about actually demanding democratization of both the state and the economy. So organising to make sure that corporations are the corporate boards are um, responsive to the interests of workers, and actually longer term that we can have much more worker ownership in the economy than we have public ownership. That the the ownership and management of that company is representative of variety of different stakeholders and that we are taking those demands for political democracy much deeper into the state so you know democratising the bank of england which is going to have a huge amount of power when this crisis is over so yeah i mean i think there are potentially this could potentially develop some of the arguments that have needed to be made by the left for a long time but which we perhaps haven't quite been able to focus on because of the mm. kind of Attempts to build this majoritarian coalition and talking about austerity was the best way to do that. Um, but I think we're now seeing the limitations of that. And I hope, and I, I, I believe actually, that we will now uh, see a deepening of those arguments for democratization and a, a better understanding of the class basis of, of institutional power.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think maybe actually on just taking the last point that Grace says there about the class basis of the state, it's kind of, again, it's hard to talk about this, I find, without people thinking that you're talking in a way that's kind of conspiratorial like we can use kind of the language of political economy maybe to talk about it but even that can i think lead down quite an academic way of discussing these issues and i think if what we're if what the left needs to do is kind of refocus its narrative to kind of expose the ways in which the state acts in the interest of the capitalist Mm. class. Mm. I think that's like, that's a kind of like a challenging thing that we need to do. I mean, it's something that there's one example, I guess, like from something that I looked at in the book and that's kind of come out now that I think is maybe slightly interesting, which is the kind of example of HSBC as a bank, because I don't know if you saw, so last week, uh, the Bank of England has actually been putting pressure on the banks and creditors to stop paying out dividends and bonuses. In a way, you could kind of bluntly look at it and think, wait a minute, so the Bank of England's telling capitalists not to pay out dividends, while the Conservative government is guaranteeing the incomes of Britain's workforce. Is this not a clear example where the state is acting in the interest of labour not in the interest of capital? You might say, you know, a critic might come along and say that. It was kind of interesting when I first saw the headlines of all these dividend payments stop being paid. Um, but then actually kind of as you read on within the kind of footnotes of, of these articles or further along in these articles you see that the kind of interest is within the detail of the story and actually um, what the kind of Bank of England was explicitly doing is was saying it was explicitly saying you know don't give bonuses and bailouts at this point because the public will kind of turn against you and you don't know where this crisis is going it might look like the financial system is going to be badly hit by this crisis, which then requires a kind of state bailout. And so it's in a way, it's kind of a more of a marketing strategy, I guess, mm-hmm. than a kind of like strategy to overthrow the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the, the deputy governor of the Bank of England said, quote, you know, we need to think very carefully about the optics. So I think these kind of examples, I guess, show that it's okay. It's not a conspiracy, but in a way, like state institutions... They do do marketing, they do, they work in a way that is kind of strategic and interesting. And I think, you know, maybe one of the reasons why they feel like they need to kind of do this now in a way that they didn't maybe in 2008, is the fact that, you know, we have had 12 years of the left absolutely battering the financial system rhetorically, and kind of associating it with our corruption and greed, which, you know, might be a problematic discourse in some respects, because the problem isn't necessarily the fact that the banks is kind of inherently more greedy than other places in the economy. But I think it's interesting that kind of that that rhetoric has become so popular now that the Bank of England kind of needs to conduct this kind of marketing strategy on behalf of like British capital. Let me bring it slightly back to the example of HSBC. So, you know, HSBC basically uh, upon hearing that they weren't allowed to pay their shareholders their dividends and pay their CEOs these massive corporate bonuses, threatened to to leave london and said no we're going to leave mm-hmm. london and go back to hong kong you know classic hsbc kind of tactic and it they me of that
1: so many times
2: <laughs> so many times it's like their number one thing it's like it's like the absolute they are the boy that cried wolf of like the british financial system
1: yeah and, prosecuting you know, it, us for laundering money for mexican drug cartels well we're gonna leave and go to hong kong
2: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah. Yeah, that, that is the thing that grace is saying is that they literally said this in 2012, when they were literally found by the US government to be responsible for, I think it's something like 800 million pounds of Mexican drug cartel illegal money. And the only reason why basically they weren't prosecuted or you know, they basically got a kind of small slap on the wrist, but the reason why nobody went to prison is the fact that George Osborne intervened and said that, you know, if you touch them, it will cause some kind of global financial disaster. And it reminded me of this quote by Nick Shackson, who's written a brilliant book called The Finance Curse um, in it. And he kind of has this quote from a kind of top executive at the time who says, I can assure you, if you think Her Majesty's government is ever going to prosecute people of my class, you are utterly mistaken. We are a protected species. And I think that that's what we mean by the fact that the state works on on behalf of capital.
3: Yeah, I think particularly with regards to this government as well, it's worth being very cynical about how it tries to appease the interests of workers when it needs to. Um, Because the trade-off that this government particularly has used is racism, nationalism, and oppressing migrants ever more and uh, pandering to that kind of rhetoric, which is an age old uh, tactic of capitalism to divide on rule on race baselines. Um, and certainly, I think the organization Charity So White have done a really great briefing on the way that the crisis, particularly, has affected BAME communities and the lack of government support or action um, on this, which is very unsurprising given its track record but I do do think that that need to be cynical about things that it seems to be doing that are supportive of you know the ordinary working man or woman Uh, I think yeah it's really important to kind of maintain that particular critique in the back of your mind.
1: Yeah this is another really interesting way in which um, we've seen different discourses of class used to support the interests of of the powerful in recent years because as I mentioned at the beginning we've had this increasing divergence between the white working class on one hand and the liberal metropolitan elite on the other hand or you know if you want to put it in different terms kind of left behind working class communities on the one hand and educated liberal uh, progressives in city centers Um, and it's really interesting how this divide which on the face of it, and I mean, even under the surface, when you actually look at the different class makeups of these two groups that are often pitted against each other, they both contain on our definition of class on that asset based definition of class, a wide spectrum of you mm. know asset owners kind of you know what I would call mini capitalists people who have some asset ownership but also derive most of their income from work and working class people and yet they've mm. taken on in our public discourse categories that we would ordinarily associate with class divide and actually the predominant class divide that Marx talked about, the divide between the capitalists and the proletariat. And it's mad that we've ended up with this uh, project to basically divide society straight down the middle, almost without any reference to the actual class divides in society and say, right, on the one hand, we have the working class, so and they all happen to be white, and then on the other hand, we have educated professionals who live in the cities who care about migrants and, you know, they're the, the, new, the new middle classes. And I mean, it's it's not hard to see how that has been a deliberate strategy that has been put forward by the populist right in order to, yet yeah, not just marginalise migrants and in communities, but actually to stop us talking about class in a way that would allow us to expose the way in which the elite benefits from um, from the system as it stands. And obviously that was ultimately what defeated the Corbyn project.
2: Exactly. And I think this question of like, where does the power of that narrative come from? That was something I tried to deal with in the book as well. You know, what, why is it that as neoliberalism kind of decays, that the class divide that's become so powerful across the whole of the world as well, it's not just in the UK, is this divide between a kind of liberal metropolitan elite and A kind of quote authentic working class, you know, where authentic means British or white or American or or whatever country you're in, and and these kind of terms being pitched against the other, yeah, the other either being not white or an immigrant, and I think like I wanted to look a little bit at the history of this because it's not that this this thing didn't just suddenly come up with in 2016 with Brexit and Trump, you know, this has been a very long lasting narrative in our history and british history mm-hmm. and it actually it goes even all the way back to the i was kind of looking back to when was the first time in which this kind of concept of whiteness was used as a way to kind of like divide a multi ethnic working class by kind of like a british elite the kind of first example that i could find was in virginia you know when the colony of virginia which was the first colony of what is now the united states of america was set up, you know, when basically people were first brought over both from Europe and Africa to kind of work the tobacco fields in Virginia, both people were basically bought as indentured servants. And so Africans weren't originally brought as slaves. And actually there was quite a lot of racial intermingling within the kind of incumbent working class. And it actually led to a kind of uprising where this kind of multi-ethnic working class overthrew the capital in Jamestown, the British colonial elites had to leave and flee back to England. And on the kind of, when they kind of came back, they implemented this new rules where they defined people around a, a racial distinction. And basically this racial distinction was connected fundamentally with ownership. It was about ownership. If to be white meant that even if you were poor, it meant that in the end you could own land, if you worked hard enough and you could become a landowner and you could kind of become rich. While if you were black, obviously it meant that you were property to be owned. And it was the kind of start of slavery. You know, from there, all the way through our history, this was in the kind of early 17th century, like 1620s, all the way through the kind of colonial period, this became a very effective strategy at kind of keeping colonial subjects in in place. And what we kind of see in, I guess, like Britain today is that colonial project being brought home, I guess, to the people that live in Britain today. And it, and it is as I said, it's not something that just started in 2016. You've also got it running all the way through the 20th century as well. When people came from HMT Windrush in 1948, we forget that somebody like Winston Churchill at the time actually complained that there were a considerable number of, you know, quote, colored workers at the post office. And he also said in 1955... He was fighting for re-election and he suggested to ministers that they should adopt the slogan keep England white. And you know, it's not just the Conservatives as well, the Labour Party as well. Like Clement Attlee referred to these kind of new arrivals as as an incursion. Yeah. And and so like this divide and rule narrative is just so it's so embedded into kind of the nature of the British state.
3: Yeah. I think you can, you know, see it as a very effective. A tactic on the part of the powerful, but equally the kind of sites for contestation of power and for cultivating solidarity, so most kind of notably in history, the union movement has more often than not failed in seeing class as being an international issue rather than a national and therefore nationalist issue. I mean there's some examples across history of workers acting in solidarity through strikes mm. and various other kinds of direct action to support their class in other parts of the world. One example that springs to mind is in the 1970s, the workers in the Rolls- Royce factory in in Scotland mm. striking over production of equipment for the um, Chilean Air Force under the Pinochet regime. But I mean, those examples are really few and far between. And, and, you know, more often than not, like notable union leaders often totally perpetuate the myth of the it's migrants that are driving down wages rather than that's, you know, a natural thing that, that a capitalist economy will always try and do
1: mm. rather
3: than fostering bonds of solidarity. And that, that is something that I, I do find like particularly concerning at the moment with a government that is prepared you know on the surface to spend money to save workers but you know will we'll always throw migrants under the bus mm. and how on earth that can be fought with even the kind
1: of sites of resistance playing into that false narrative I'm, I'm glad Emily really brought up the international element of it, actually, because I think it is incredibly important, actually, to highlight the relationship between the class structures of various states in the global north and the imperialist relationships that those, those states have with the rest of the world. Part of the reason that we were able to say class is dead is effectively because the strategy for, I suppose, taming working class anger, part of the strategy for taming working class anger and resistance over the past 50 years More than that, actually, uh, since the end of formal colonialism um, has been to facilitate the hyper exploitation of workers in the global south who face unbelievably horrific conditions. You know, Marx talks a lot in Capital about just Keynesian conditions that workers face in factories in the UK. And, you know, a lot of people will go back to Marx now and say, oh, well, it's not like that anymore. But of course it is. It's just like that predominantly for workers in the global south, for millions of workers across the global south. Whilst a lot of the actual commodity production is undertaken in the global south, the management of these huge corporations, along with, uh, you know, the accounting, their finances, the realisation of surplus value, the, the advertising, those sorts of things, all take place in the global north. So you have seen the emergence of a fairly large, in some societies, although overall in the global economy, not that big, managerial class that derives its income from basically manage, managing a global production process mm. now, of course that class is still even small in the countries where those the, those classes have grown and you know the majority of uh, of workers in the uk are still working class of one kind or another or actually um, even if they're not uh, engaged in the production of commodities often engage in, in social reproduction to so the reproduction of human beings but what we have seen i think is that. Those big structural changes and and the uh, massive increasing importance of imperialism in structuring the relationships between workers around the world has fed into the ease with which both states and you know certain uh, whether you're, you're looking at, you know, union leaders or uh, working class intellectuals or whatever, have been able to uh, build a narrative that pits working people in, in the UK against working people in other parts of the world. Because actually, in at certain points in history, you know, there have been times when elements of the working class in the UK, and certainly, you know, this big managerial class has benefited from the hyper exploitation of workers elsewhere, so, yeah, I mean, this is why I think it's really important that we, we can't undertake a discussion of class without looking at it historically and without looking at it internationally so from the perspective of, of the world system. When you do that, it starts to become clearer that actually, you know, the capitalism that Marx described, one where there is this fundamental distinction between workers and owners, yes, mediated to a greater or lesser extent by managers and functionaries and rentiers, etc. But that distinction between capital and labour is still very, very strong and clear.
0: Yeah, so just to pick up on what you're talking about there, how we have to have an international understanding of class. One thing I saw recently is that there's been calls made by the Jubilee Debt Campaign and a number of other NGOs uh, for debt relief, right? the dropping of debt repayments by countries in the global south whose economies are suffering acutely from the coronavirus uh, crisis. Would this be a good example of an act of meaningful international solidarity from rich countries?
1: I think that this is, I think, just one of the most important issues that's going to come out of this crisis. Uh, it, mm. it, you know, the, the global south at the moment, some states in the global south are facing a debt crisis on the scale that makes the 1970s look like, you know, nothing. Um, mm. and because there have been so many divides that have emerged recently within the left amongst about attitudes towards international issues, particularly on Europe and the UK. I think this is something where everyone can absolutely agree. Everyone who considers that we have any sort of responsibility towards workers anywhere in the world can agree that the idea that basically a bunch of states in the global south cannot afford to provide basic health care for people suffering from coronavirus because a bunch of bond vigilantes are selling their sovereign debt, pushing their bond yields up and making it impossible for them to do so. I think that's something we can all completely
0: agree on. You've been listening to Radicals in Conversation. This is a free, abridged version of the episode. If you've enjoyed the discussion and want to keep listening, then head over to patreon.com forward slash plutopress and join us as a patron today. Members donating £5 a month or more can get access to the extended version of this podcast with the opportunity to put your questions to our guests as well. That link again is patreon.com forward slash plutopress. Thanks for listening.